Heaven-Movie.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to an encore presentation of Pilgrim's Progress. We will not be taking calls today. and feelings only have meaning if they are attached or connected to actions. Actions matter. Words are cheap. There is a reality that we are called to in Jesus Christ to know him personally. That's not simply poetic. That's reality. Jesus is everything for us. And we must know who he is. And we must stand by faith and act according to his will. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. You're listening to Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. This journey is vital that we understand. I look at this nation and our currency is a fiat currency. By fiat currency, I mean there's nothing behind it. It's simply paper. But it doesn't have any intrinsic value. It's not gold. It's not silver. It's not backed up by anything. Our Christian life can be like that. A fiat Christian life with nothing backing it up. Full of wonderful emotions and intentions filled with warm statements of belief and trust in Jesus. But if it's not backed up by gold, it's a fiat currency and it will crash. And it will not carry us through to heaven. This is what's coming. Let me share it with you. Revelation 20th chapter, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that was in it, and death and Hades gave up the death, the dead that was in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Did you notice that that passage of Scripture did not say, He who is declared righteous and covered, He who is declared righteous and covered will inherit all of this? He does not say, Those whom I look at, but don't see them, I see instead Jesus. They will inherit all of this? It doesn't say that. It says, he who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murders, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Well, why would he list? Why would Jesus list cowardly as number one? Because a cowardly person will not face the reality of their sin and deal with it faithfully. Instead, they hide their face. They will not admit their true condition. They will not look honestly at who they are. They will speak wonderful words of deception. But they will not deal with their sin. And Jesus calls them, cowardly. The unbelievers, those who do not believe that the blood of Jesus has the power to break all sin now in their lives. He said, today is the day of salvation. The provision is there for you to be made clean, to be washed. Remember, sin comes and expresses itself in two ways. One, by guilt knowing that we have not fulfilled the word of God, knowing that we have turned aside from Jesus. And then secondly, by pollution, a life filled with darkness, a life filled with self, unbelief, cowardly. 
The first requires pardon. The second requires purging, cleansing, scrubbing. That is the work that the Holy Spirit is prepared to do in your life and in mine. Will you let him? Yes, it's painful sometimes, but will you let him have his way in your life and in your heart? Let me share with you again, just very briefly, a part of Pilgrim's Progress. Of course, this book was written and published first in 1678 by John Bunyan. I'm reading an edition that is edited by C.J. Lovick. As I walked, this is John Bunyan, through the wilderness of this world, I came to a certain place where there was a cave. And of course, we know that cave was the prison he was placed in because he was preaching the word of God. I lay down in that place to sleep, and as I slept, I dreamed a dream. And in this dream, I saw a man clothed in rags, standing in a place with his face turned away from his own house. He had a book in his hand and a heavy burden upon his back. I looked and saw him open the book and began to read. And as he read, he wept and trembled. Not being able to contain himself, he cried out in a loud voice, What shall I do? Now the problem we face in America today is that words have lost their meaning. And we seem unwilling to recognize the rags that we wear as the garments of darkness. This man recognized he was dressed in the garments of darkness because as he read the scripture, he was convicted of his sin. The greatest need we have today is to have our eyes opened that we could see the rags that we wear and turn and allow the mighty and righteous God of heaven to remove the heavy burden from our back. But many of you today don't recognize the heavy burden that is on your back. You don't recognize the fear, the anguish, the worry. This is all part of the heavy burden that Satan has placed on your back by your permission. I'd like to share with you today a part of a sermon that Charles Finney preached sometime around 1845 to 1850 at a college called called Oberlin College that he helped establish. Now you know today that Oberlin is one of the most wicked places on any college campus. It is utterly progressive It is sold into darkness, and every vestige of righteousness has been removed from that campus. But let me share what his message was. As an introduction, he teaches that every man has the ability 
to choose to repent. That every man is given by grace the obligation and the ability to obey the living God of heaven. But we have turned from the living God of heaven and have been bound in chains, moral chains, chains of the devil. Now, we are free to make a choice. The Bible always treats men as though they were free. The Bible commands us to do certain things and not to do certain things, as if we have the power required to obey such commands. One young minister said, I preach that men ought to repent, but never that they can repent. And Finney asked, why not also preach that they can repent? He replied, the Bible does not affirm that they can. To this I replied that it would be perfectly ridiculous for a human government to require certain duties, but then to affirm that the people have no power to obey those commands. Freedom of will is one of the earliest convictions we have. Probably no one living can remember his first conviction of right or wrong. It is also one of the most irresistible convictions. We assume the freedom of our own will from the very beginning. The little child affirms it in his first efforts to accomplish his purposes. Look at him reaching out to get food or his toy. His free will begins to act long before he can understand it. He begins to act on his own responsibility long before he can estimate what or how great this responsibility is. The fact of personal responsibility is fastened upon us so that we can no more escape this conviction than we can escape from ourselves. So man does have the attribute of moral freedom. But it is also true that men are morally enslaved. They are in moral bondage. They have liberty through their created makeup and the bondage comes by voluntary perversion and abuse of their powers. The Bible portrays men as being in bondage, as having the power to resist temptation to sin, yet as voluntarily yielding to those temptations. The Bible presents Satan as ruling the hearts of men at his will. Satan ruled Eve in the garden. And now he works in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. What the Bible presents in regard to this matter is true. Wicked men know that they are in bondage to Satan. 
who do you think puts it into the hearts of people to plot iniquity and to drink that iniquity like water? Is it not the devil? Many men and women, when tempted, seem to have no moral stamina to resist, but are swept away by the first gust of temptation. As one man said to me, I'm at work. Someone makes me angry. I come home. I just want to relax. I want to just drink. And then I get drunk. Well, there are triggers that Satan uses. He knows your ways. And he knows that if he can trigger you at certain points, you will have the desired response and walk into the depth of darkness. Another man becomes lonely in his heart. And so he will look at some immoral pictures. He will turn to pornography. And then he will turn to an available person to have fornication with. And then he will feel vile. He will feel guilty. He will say, this was wrong. I'm a follower of Jesus. What's going on? There were trigger points. And each of us must identify those trigger points and then turn to reality. And some will have to spend time in prayer looking carefully at the trigger points of your life and then looking at the reality of where that course of action will take you into the depths of darkness and say, is that truly where I want to go or do I want to go into the light? Human beings are in bondage to their appetites and when their appetites are excited they're led away as Adam and Eve were what can be the reason why some young people find it hard to give up the drugs some of you have been smoking for a long time and you know it's destructive you know it's destroying you and yet you continue to smoke you know the habit is filthy and disgusting you know that you should not be doing it, but your appetite craves it. And the devil encourages the cravings. The poor victim makes a feeble effort to deliver himself, but the devil turns the screw against you and holds you tighter and then drags you back into a harder bondage. It's similar when a person is in bondage to alcohol or any other form of fleshly indulgence. All you have to say is, I'm going to stop the gluttonous behavior of my life. And then suddenly, food will come raging. It will become the topic of your mind, of your thoughts. It will seem the most important thing in the world because you have decided you will stand against it. And you are powerless to stand against that appetite. Human beings are in bondage to the love of money, to the fashions of the world, to the opinions of other people. 
and by these they are enslaved and led against the demands of duty. Everyone who is led counter to his convictions of duty is enslaved. Let me say that again. Everyone who is led counter to his convictions regarding his duty is enslaved. You are in bondage. Now, you have two choices. You can blow it off. This is not Finney. This is now Pastor Ray. You can blow off that conviction. And you can say it's not a big deal that I'm enslaved to this wickedness, whatever it is. You can cry crocodile tears and say, Jesus, I don't like this. You can make it of non-import in your life. Or you can say, in reality, I know what my duty is. I do not want to walk in this darkness. I renounce it in the name of Jesus. And now I am going to go to Jesus and ask him to totally deliver me from this. And he will totally deliver you. And the devil will come back time after time to test to see whether or not you actually were serious when you asked Jesus to deliver you. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he made provision for you and for me. But some of us enjoy our worrying. Some of you delight yourself in punishing yourself for your sin. Some of you young people feel so bad about yourself that you cut yourself and you draw blood. That is the blood of the sacrifice to the devil. Cutting is not an answer. Increasing the pain and causing yourself to be punished is not the answer. You can take seriously your sin. You can look at the reality of that sin very clearly and identify it. You can renounce it in the name of Jesus. And you can turn your eyes upon Jesus. And he will deliver you. Whether it be from alcohol, drugs, cutting, fornication, gluttony, worry, bitterness of heart, anger. The list goes on and on. If you choose to be cowardly and not come to terms with reality, according to Revelation, the day will come when the grace of God will no longer be there for you and you will be cast into the fire along with the master who holds you, the devil. We are free, and now this is Charles Finney, we are free only when we act in accordance with those convictions. This is the true idea of liberty. Only when reason and conscience control the will is a person free. For God made humans to be intelligent and moral beings who act under the influence of their own enlightened conscience and reason. Now, this is why 
I have come now for a second day talking about words have no meaning if they are not connected to actions. A man has a conscience and man has the ability to think, to reason. A man can clearly see his duty before God. And if you simply blow that off, and do not do your duty, if you do not turn to the living God of heaven, if you do not turn to Jesus, you will be swept away time after time, and you will not be an overcomer. Charles Finney says, This is the freedom that God exercises and enjoys. None can be higher or nobler. But when a moral agent is in bondage to his low appetites and passions and is led by them to disregard the dictates of his conscience and of his reason, he is simply a slave to a very hard and cruel master. Some of you listening to this broadcast today are a slave to a very hard and cruel master while you whimper for Jesus. God made people to be free, giving them all the mental powers that they need in order to control their own activities as a rational being would wish to. Their bondage, then, is altogether voluntary. They choose to resist the control of reason. They submit to the control of appetite and passion. Every person who refuses to repent is conscious of being in bondage to temptation. What man, if he is not saved from sin through grace, does not know that he is an enemy to himself? I would have little respect for any man who says he has never been ashamed of himself and has never found himself doing things he could not well account for. I would be especially ashamed and afraid, too, if I were to hear a young man say that he has never had a sense of his moral weakness. Such ignorance would only show his utter lack of reflection and his consequent failure to notice the most obvious moral phenomena of his inner life. Does he not know that his weakest desires carry his will despite the strongest convictions of his reason and conscience to the contrary. To go against one's conscience in this way produces an entirely guilty condition because it is so altogether voluntary. It is greatly opposed to the convictions of one's reason and of one's understanding and it is opposed to one's convictions of God's righteous demands. To go against such convictions, one must be supremely guilty. Such conduct is suicidal. The sinner acts in unquestioning opposition to his own best interest, so that if he has the power to ruin himself, this course of action will certainly do it. 
the course he pursues is of of all others best adapted to destroy both body and soul. Let me take a moment. Many of you listening to this broadcast today act in a way that is determined on your part to destroy your soul and destroy your body. Many of you already have a great weakness of the physical body because of your sin. I listened to one precious woman as she stood in front of the National Prayer Chapel this last Sunday and talked about the great trauma that is facing her in her physical health. She is very sick. She said, I am responsible for my sickness because I have mistreated my body. And now I must turn the corner and I must follow Jesus. I was cheering for her in my seat. Tears were in my eyes. Why? Because here was a beautiful woman who was willing to take responsibility for her actions and change them by the grace and by the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to change your actions? Are you willing to recognize the reality of your condition before God? And will you take action to change that? How can anything that we pursue that causes us to be destroyed be anything but suicide? The sinner actively denies all moral obligation. He knows the fact of his moral obligation, and yet he denies it in the face of clearest convictions. How can that not be suicidal? Many times I have asked sinners how they could account for their own conduct. The honest ones answer, I cannot at all. I am an enemy to myself. The real explanation is that while they are free moral agents, they have sold themselves into moral bondage by their infatuation with sin, and they are in reality slaves to sin to Satan, and to darkness. They are enslaved to the lust of their flesh. This is what Jesus was speaking about in the passage I read from Revelation 20 and 21. That a man who is a coward, who will not face the reality of his suicidal behavior, will not be allowed into the kingdom of God. We must stop being sentimental. We must stop operating by our feelings. And we must come to terms with the reality of our bondage by our own choices. This is a state of deep moral degradation. It is highly disgraceful. 
everybody feels that certain forms of sin and certain classes of sinners are disgraceful. We all feel that drunkenness is beastly. Think of the drunkard reeling about, mentally stupefied, reeking in his own filth. Is it not a beast? But not a beast. But not even a beast is so mean and so vile. No beast gives us such a sense of voluntary degradation. An animal will not voluntarily destroy itself. So compared with this self-besotted drunkard, any other creature would be seen as noble. We all say this when we look only from our human standpoint, but there is another and better standpoint. How do angels look upon this self-made drunkard? They see him as only a little lower than themselves, Psalm 8, 4, and 5, and as one who might have aspired to companionship with them, yet he chose instead to sink himself down to the level of the swine. Oh, how their souls must recoil from the sight of such self-made degradation, to see quality of intellect discarded, to see even nobler moral qualifications utterly cast out and disowned and trodden underfoot as if they were only an encumbrance. This, I'm sure, is too much for angels to bear. Think of how they must feel. But the drunkard is not alone in the contempt that his fleshly degradation entails. Consider one who smokes tobacco. The laws of the community exclude him from many places. Yet for the sake of this low indulgence, the smoker is willing to go into indecent places. He will sneak out from among respectable people in order to herd with others who have the same filthy indulgence. If he were forced to spend the entire day in the society to which he sinks himself by this indulgence, it might warn him of the cost of his worldliness. It might also help to open his eyes. I've mentioned these forms of fleshly indulgence in order to illustrate the real degradation of sin. In these cases, the good sense of mankind has been shown by the degree of scorn that is cast upon these adherents, the self-indulgence. If we only saw things in their true light, we would take the view of the so-called moralist. One popular moralist once said to me, How can I act with regard to God or to what is right? How can I go to church with the high intention of pleasing God? I could go with the desire to promote my own selfish ends, but how can I go for the sake of pleasing God? Yes, this is precisely the sinner's difficulty and his guilt. He does not care how little he pleases God. This is the least of his concern. The very lowest kind of motives sway his will and his life. He stands entirely apart from the reach of the highest and noblest intentions given to him by God. In this we find his self-made degradation and his exceedingly great guilt. This is true of the miser. 
when he gets beyond all motives but the love of hoarding, when his question is not, how will I honor the human race and bless my generation or glorify my maker, but how can I make a few more pennies? Even when he is urged to pray, he will ask, what profit will I have if I do pray to God? When you find a man so incapable of being moved by noble influence, what a wretch he is. How indescribably base. There is also the ambitious scholar whose aims are too low to be influenced by the exalted motive of doing good and who feels only what affects his reputation. Is this not exceedingly low and mean? What would you think of the preacher who lost all regard for the welfare of souls and thought only of maintaining his reputation? What would you say of him? You would declare that he was too low and too wicked to live and fit only for hell. What would you think of him who shines like Lucifer among the morning stars of intellect and genius, but who debases himself to the low and miserly activity of fishing for applause and compliments. Would you not say that self-seeking in this manner is inexpressibly contemptible? With all of heaven from above beckoning them on to lofty purposes and efforts, there they are, nosing after some little advantage to their small selves. All this comes from Bondage to selfishness. How unfortunate that there is so much of this in our world that public opinion rarely considers it according to its real nature. Now our subject reveals the case of those who are convicted of what is right but cannot be persuaded to do it. For example, a drunkard knows what his duty is he knows he ought to reform, yet he will not change. Every sermon he hears brings conviction, but the next temptation sweeps the conviction away, and he returns like a dog to his vomit. Proverbs 26.11 But take note of this. Every time temptation triumphs over the man's convictions that he should be sober, he is left weaker than before, and very soon you will find him utterly prostrate. Prostrate. Recall our text verse, by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Miserable man, how certainly he will die in his sins. No matter what the form of the temptation may be, he who is convinced of his duty, yet takes no corresponding action, is on the highway to hell. Inevitably, this bondage goes stronger and stronger with every fresh trial of its strength. Every time you are convicted of your duty and yet resist that conviction and refuse to act in accordance with it, you become more and more helpless. You commit yourselves more and more to the control of your iron-hearted master. Every fresh case renders you only the more fully helpless as a slave. As I consider these words of Charles Finney today, 
I've seen this so many times. So that today in the church, there is often no longer any conviction of the need to pray. I heard a man invite another man to come and pray with him. And the first man said, Oh, my prayer life is about this level. Now I lay thee down. Now I lay me down to sleep. A child's prayer. He laughed and he said, I, I can't come. He would not pray. He has no conviction of a need to pray because he has no idea what his sin is. The bondage seems to be his normal life now. He can go to church. He can go through the rituals. He can give a little money. He can joke. He can laugh. He can be social. But no conviction of his sin. In fact, he doesn't even think he has any sin. He has no burden of sin on his back because he never reads the scriptures. He never seeks God. He never asks God to reveal to him the true condition of his heart. And so he is a Christian man who is lost and hell-bound. Breaks my heart. We live in a day when we think that words will save us. Words will not save you. Some sentimental relationship with Jesus will not save you. We must come to the hard terms and recognize the righteous God we serve, the holy God we serve. He is not a sentimental God who says, there, there, it's okay that you're serving the devil. After you're finished with the devil, come and see me and I'll love you too doesn't work that way. Finney continues. You may know of some young men or women who have already made themselves moral wrecks. There may be young people not yet 20 years old who have already put their conscience beneath their feet and trampled on it. You young people, you've already learned to go against all your convictions of duty. How horrible! Every day your hands are growing stronger. With each day's resistance, your soul is more deeply and hopelessly lost. Poor, miserable, dying sinner. He who is often rebuked and hardens his heart will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Proverbs 29.1 Suddenly you are thrown upon the breaking waves and are gone, your friends move solemnly along the shore, looking out on the rocks of damnation on which your soul is wrecked, weeping as they go. They, they mournfully say, this is the destruction of one who knew his duty but did not do it. Thousands of times the appeals of conviction came to his heart, but he learned to resist them. He made excuses. He made it his business to resist the Holy Spirit, and unfortunately he was only too successful I am so concerned today. I see so many young people, young people in their late teens or in their 20s or even their early 30s, and they're roaming about with no purpose in life. 
roaming about, getting in trouble, seeking sexual gratification, looking here and there, talking dirty, acting dirty, walking dirty before God, full of sin and corruption, never going to be rooted anywhere, blow in and out of churches, coming in and finding nothing that grabs their heart, no conviction of sin, roaming young people like a pack of wild dogs, only to be destroyed. I'm saying, Lord Jesus, will you give these young people a place, a shelter? Will you come and rescue them? Our whole nation is being given up. Young people rioting in the streets, breaking the windows, hitting people with hammers. All following like lemmings after the wickedness of our president and our attorney general. Following after the progressive way not being responsible, not repenting for their sins, filled with utter wickedness, darkness, hopeless. I'm crying out, oh Jesus, we're losing a whole generation. And then the attorneys, I just heard in Harvard and Yale, They've banded together and asked and demanded that the final exams at law school be postponed because they're in trauma over what's happening with the demonstrations and the legal decisions that are being made. What? They used to be called wastelings. That was what in the old days they would be called wastelings. Men and women of no moral value. Men and women who only know how to fulfill the desire of their flesh and their, their desire for entertainment. Their desire to gain what their flesh desires. Wastelings. I'm saying, oh, Jesus, send revival to this nation. Send revival to Washington, D.C. Lord, turn this nation once more to do its duty to you to repent of its sin and to cry out for salvation. Finney goes on. How insane the delusion that the sinner's case is getting better while he is yet in his sins. The drunkard might as well imagine that he is getting better because every temperance lecture convicts him of his sin and shame while every next day's temptation leaves him as drunk as ever. Getting better? And I would add, the longer you listen to Pilgrim's Progress and then don't act on what you hear, the harder your heart will grow. It would be better for you not to listen to this broadcast than to simply consider it to be beautiful music, entertainment, and I know that for some of you, this broadcast is merely entertainment because you're not going to act on it. We must act on the Word of God. There can be no delusion as false and fatal 
as the delusion to think that you are standing even as you have fallen in your sin. And to imagine that Jesus loves you in the midst of your sin and will save you in the midst of your sin is a total delusion. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to totally remove sin from our hearts. You can see the force of this delusion, Finney says, in clearer light when you notice how slight are the considerations that sway the soul against all the vast influences of God's character and kingdom. It must be a strong and fearful delusion that can make such tiny considerations outweigh such vast and momentous influences. The guilt of this state can be estimated by the insignificance of the motives that control the mind. What's he saying? He's saying that sin is utterly insignificant. That that alcohol, that that lust, that pornography, it is utterly insignificant in its power compared to the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. What would you think of the youth who would murder his father for only a dollar? What, you would exclaim, to be bribed to murder his father for such a small pittance? You would consider his guilt even greater by how much less the temptation is. We need the Holy Spirit to impress the truth on the hearts of every sinner. You may also see how certain sinners will be lost if they grieve the Spirit of God away. Your earthly friends might be discouraged, and yet you might be saved. But if the Spirit of God becomes discouraged and leaves you, your doom is sealed forever. Hosea 9.12 Woe to them when I depart from them. This departure of God from the sinner gives the signal for the tolling bell for his lost soul. Then the mighty angel begins to toll the great bell of eternity, one more soul going to its eternal doom. I praise God that that bell is not tolling for you today. If it were tolling for you today, you would not have listened to this broadcast. You would have long ago, in anger and bitterness, turned it off. I praise God you're listening. I ask, will you get in the prayer closet? And will you begin to ask God to once more show you your duty? To restore your reason, your ability to think, to clear away all of the deceptive lies of the devil? And will you ask Jesus if he would show you the reality of your true condition before him? you deal with reality? Would you talk with him if you're lukewarm or if you're cold? Would you confess your sin? Will you repent of it and turn aside from it? 
Will you seek Jesus? Or will you seek the darkness? Almighty God, I pray for each brother and sister listening to this broadcast today. And I ask now, Holy Spirit, would you turn their faces toward you, Jesus? Would you open our hearts and our minds that the deceptive work of the devil could be destroyed once and for all in our hearts? Would you give us the courage to leave the darkness and enter into the light of the glory of Jesus Christ? Lord, thank you. I pray in your holy name. Amen. You're welcome to go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. There you'll find where we meet on Sunday. You're welcome to worship with us. I pray God's richest blessing for you today. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. Present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. With great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is 